Hello, and welcome to the ICE Tech Talks podcast, part of the ICE's CPD program. I'm James Crumley, a Knowledge Manager here at the ICE. In this episode, we are looking at earthwork stability in a changing climate, and what this means for resilient geotechnical design. To explore this topic, I have two great guests joining me, Alison Norrish, Fellow at Arup, and Liz Rivers, Senior Associate Director of Grand Engineering at Jacobs. Alison, do you want to say hello and tell us a bit about yourself and your current role? Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Alison Norrish. I'm my director uh, and fellow in Arab and a geotechnical engineer by trade. I have specialised over the last 20 years or so in uh, in the design, construction and um, of major linear infrastructure projects, uh, both in the UK and uh, globally. And clearly, you know, the design of earthworks and the successful design of earthworks for those new schemes is absolutely critical. One of the things that I think we recognise in, in the UK is, is that sweating the asset and understanding existing assets as well is really important. And again, um, I have a role increasingly working alongside my colleagues and clients and contractors in understanding the behaviour and response of the existing infrastructure and earthworks uh, to the to the world that we find ourselves in. Thank you, Alison. And Liz, the same question to you. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, hi. Um, so yes, Liz, and I work for Jacobs, as I said. Um, I provide geotechnical advice um, on a portfolio of projects that's aimed at reducing the risk of fluvial and coastal uh, flooding to communities and businesses. Um, trying to do this in in a sustainable manner and um, looking at ways to also sort of increase prosperity and um, environmental aspects for those environments. And and like Alison, a lot of the shift from my my work has been over the last, I'd say, five to ten years now is more looking at how to actually extend the reliable behaviour of those earthworks um, because a lot of them are on ageing infrastructure in this this country. Um, so assets that have been around for over 100 plus years now and they are moving towards what is almost like a, a tipping point of becoming more unreliable. So it's about how to intervene and what interventions to make to try and extend the life of those assets as well as building new ones to alleviate flooding in other areas. Thank you both. So Liz, if we start with you, uh, I guess, how how are you seeing climate change already Im- impacting earthworks and sort of geotechnical assets, uh, you know, day-to-day in your in your role? So there's lots of different sides of it. So um, I suppose it's understanding climate, it's about understanding the um, sort of the, it's the probability of these things and the uncertainties of them. So in terms of new design, there's quite a lot of information and science that can support that because the climate changes around the sea level rises, the um, increased storm events and the increased wave loading and wind loading. They're starting to become more and more data on that. So when you're building new defences, in particular like coastal defences, there is the the science there to tell you over a certain return period what type of levels of loads that you might be able to expect and so depending on then your design life you can try and you you, you can factor that in so that's to try and make sure that you're building defenses to the right height and to be able to withstand the right loads and also to be able to withstand things like the um, higher intensity of rainfall events uh, what's perhaps a bit more difficult is trying to put solutions onto existing assets 
where they haven't been designed to withstand those changes already. Um, so that's where it gets more complicated, particularly on a lot of the assets in this country, which are already uh, geometrically kind of um, limited in terms of how much further, you know, you what footprint you can take for them and how you can expand. Um, quite a lot of the urban areas obviously have already very built up, so you can't gain more land. Um, similarly out, you know, on the on the coast, you've got communities that are living in close proximity to a lot of the shorelines. So it's not not as easy as always just um, maintaining the line. Alison, you were nodding along there, sort of things that resonate with you. and Yeah, I mean, just picking up from what Liz is saying, I mean, even without the uh, challenges of climate change, certainly any embankment existing built by our Victorian forebears or um, pretty much anyone else, when you uh, apply current codes and requirements to those existing slopes, um, they very rarely pass. Um, and so you already are in a field where you're having to use judgment to deal with that. And and then you are no question about it. And we're now, what are we, it's February 22, and we've just come through, we're coming through the fourth storm in as many weeks. You know, there is no question that we're seeing more extreme events. That's going to continue. And on the impact on existing assets, I think it's it's really interesting because from my perspective, slope stability, earthwork stability is all about water. Very rarely do we come across relatively short-term, fully undrained conditions. As soon as you have water in a, a drain condition mix, you start to affect the stability and the behaviour of those systems. So in terms of stability, Clearly, the higher the water, ta- the water table and the interim uh, water conditions, that uh, an, a storm event or generally seasonal changes in water table will provoke are really important. And we've seen some slope stability failures in Scotland on the railway, etc. quite recently, catastrophic events that I think show what, what, can, uh, what can result. Um, but we've also got kind of that more long term we know for instance in embankments that support much of our existing railway and road infrastructure that seasonal changes in in, in water uh, regime um, come give rise to swell and shrink events etc and that seasonal change and seasonal kind of uh, fluctuation again will be heightened are likely to be heightened by future climate changes um, drier summers, drier conditions, again, repeated flood events, etc. And I think that we are we are ahead of our experience. We're having to make decisions and make uh, take judgments without, if you like, full um, understanding. Certainly, the codes remain quite quiet about this. And I I pick up on Liz's perspective that we do have increasing data and forecast of what may and may not happen, but we're way outside. There's a lot of unknown in that. We're way outside the kind of database that we've built up of uh, water table fluctuations, et cetera, that we've been building up over hundreds of years. So I think there are still great unknowns and great challenges involved in in dealing with that. From, and from the sounds of it, sort of gaps in our in our knowledge as well. You know, and, and you mentioned sort of codes and perhaps there's some work there coming up quite soon that needs to be done there. Yeah, my feeling is, and Liz, you're probably more in the thick of it now than, you know, than I am in these things, but uh, I think that, that codes, irrespective of climate change, were relatively light touch in terms of water conditions yeah. um, in, and, and their effect on existing and, and uh, new build earthworks. 
you know, it's already a bit of a, uh, a black art, you know, in terms of R numbers and, you know, yeah, no, very much so. So in terms of external loading, I think there's there's fairly good data over it. In terms of internal, like you say, pull to pressure data or how you in, you um, assess for that is it's very unknown. Um, so almost like traditional foundation design, you'd put groundwater at the ground surface embankments. You know, a lot of them are above the ground. It's just not, you don't do that. So yes, you start having this debate and this consideration are you are you going to apply an RU value is that credible is it realistic what does it do actually over a transient condition when you've got either a seasonal effect or otherwise just a weather effect you know in its short term what's the impact of the climate change onto those impacts you know from year to year so although there's more and good I'd say more reliable data or there's better understanding also what how the climate change is shifting how that's impacting on all the internal makeup of the the sort of structure of within the embankments there isn't the data on that um which is why we're having to apply judgment and almost like as it were common sense <laughs> um uh, to these things um and it, it's 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 it is very difficult <laughs> it is difficult because because of the sensitivity yes. i mean again on 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 slopes you know that ru number is absolutely critical mm. highly highly sensitive to to that um, assumption on on, on on the groundwater within or the pore pressures within the embankments themselves and you know the, the difference between an RU of 0.2 to you know something higher is it's, it's a it's a very very marked change and kind of using rules of thumb that were applicable i think the danger is that they become no longer applicable mm-hmm. or no longer constantly applicable perhaps is a better way of putting it and so we have to as engineers and designers we have to um, we have to sort of walk that tightrope of understanding and being confident about behaviour, but not being overly conservative. And, you know, frankly, uh, just, you know, spending, you know, you can solve any problem if you throw enough money at it. But, you know, a lot of this, certainly the existing infrastructure, um, is something that we're going to have to nurture, cherish and, and you know, try and manage with least cost. So it is it is a highly sensitive issue and i wonder whether uh the use of our you know again increasingly complex modeling not necessarily complex models um soil models but the uh, ability of engineers to use um finite element and other analysis across a range of scenarios in the way that we weren't used to doing perhaps 20 years ago so what I think we can do with the increased ability of assessment and uh, analysis is to use that to better understand a larger number of groundwater soil behaviour conditions or scenarios so that we can understand potential failure mechanisms, not as direct answers, but as pointers and understanding mm. towards how the existing and future assets may behave with a much wider range of conditions. Liz, is that, uh, is that similar, for, I guess, from what you've been working on in, in different sectors in terms of that, you know, trying to understand and building that knowledge and, uh, and his modelling providing those pointers, I guess, already? Um, or is it still something that's needed, I guess? Um, I think at the moment there's a difference between... Uh, well, I sh- I'll just get out of here now. I'm not an expert in these <laughs> 
think so. Yeah, I'm constantly having to um, read up and and learn and talk to colleagues and and people in academia about what's going on. But and it strikes me, you know, there's there is obviously a lot continually being done in this area. But from what I understand, the the research that's been done, um, for example, in the Achilles project, has pulled together some excellent now data and relationships about, for example, soil degradation um, and uh, the effect of uh, suction on soils and the the change of that over time when you continually change the moisture content in it um, and and therefore that deterioration process. But a lot of that's on, it's almost, it's obtaining the, the, the hard facts now through lab trials and field trials and through modelling and they can predict that a bit better. But it's already when and, and that, that ratchetinic um, degradation. So it's obtaining the data on something now that we understood already was happening. Where we haven't got to is a point where we can apply that in the field as practitioners or even the bit before then, which is almost a million dollar question is, when has the soil started to soften so then it is behaving in a deteriorating manner? Because... It's just there's a, a a big question mark over the time that elapses when it's reliable and it's performing to when it starts to deteriorate. And so we understand that when it starts to deteriorate, what's now starting to, you know, that that the science behind it and the explanation, we understand it when it's behaving reliable. It's that tipping point of when it goes from one to the other. Um, how do you determine at what period that is or what has triggered that change? in the behavior um and and to me that's where there's there's this this uncertainty and of course you can observe it you can put in monitoring techniques for it and there's visual observations and um things like um, satellite imagery as well and lidar to be able to detect surface defects which are signs then that things are changing and then you might know that you're starting to get into a deterioration um, stage of an asset's life but um I guess the it's that that how do you get the science to match up like the empirical correlations I suppose to be able to apply it to 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 infrastructure and to make it real um, and that's where I think at the moment though there's still this this judgment that's being applied. Yeah, yeah, and no, I totally agree with what they're saying. There, there is an absolute gap between you know the the our ability to analyse, which I think we can do and we can apply, as I say, a greater number of scenarios and perhaps hopefully better understanding to uh, the design of new new earthworks. Mm. But for the existing features, I, I think it, we will never know uh, exactly, as Liz is pointing out, the tipping point, if you like, the point at which things start to behave differently. That may or may not be accelerated by the climate changes that we're having, mm. as I say, greater and harder dry periods a larger number of extreme um, uh, storm events, etc. I don't think we know that. And I think we we need to build up as quickly as we can. And I'm, we're talking over, a, you, know, a num- you know, probably a decade or more. But I don't think that we're focusing as we can and should do on the information that can be gleaned. Um, and Liz, you alluded to this, you know, we do have LIDAR, we have remote surveying techniques now that aren't people with in orange, you know, with sticks. Yeah wandering around uh, live railway and, and highway environments, which is to be avoided. But we do definitely have potential information that with the right will from some of the asset owners, 
Um, and I think they are winning. And we're talking about network rail, highways, uh, in the, what we call national highways, I beg your pardon, <laughs> etc. You know, it's in everybody's interest, including these large asset owners, to, to build up that amount of, and share that kind of data. Because these things do tend to, it's trends of information. Mm. Movement is real. You know, stress and strain are <laughs> constructs, but uh, movement is absolutely real. And the, the measurement, the cheap and uh, you know, more widespread use of uh, movement measurement on existing infrastructure, assets, coasts, etc., has to be something that we, we embrace in this, in this decade and really ratchet up our pooling of information and understanding of that information so that within that sort of time frame, we can start as designers to use those empirical, uh, that empirical set of data to better inform how we make assessments and design in the future. And I don't think we've tied that up end to end yet. I think it's mm. a real challenge for us. Yeah, I think that, uh, that's completely right. I think there's, um, there is, there is a vast amount of information out there because I think a lot of our clients and, and, and have been obtaining data and background for some time now, but there's, there's not quite been the ability of how to process that data. And also if you were processing or using it, it's more like it's been collated, but not used to its best advantages yet. Um, and I think there's been great developments again also in our kind of geodigital capabilities these days and in the the kind of the realisation that the information, so if we, if we use it the right way, if we can write programs and scripts in the right way to kind of remove the noise from that data and actually get the the, the links and the trends that we want to, because like Alison says, it, it is about trends. And if you start looking for those and piecing together the bits of any information, I think you can then say go in and, you know, for example, so the Environment Agency, I think they have, I see various numbers around that, you know, they it's it's thousands and thousands of kilometres worth of of coast and fluvial embankments just in England. You know, you can't possibly try and instrument or monitor all of that. You know, at any time, and most of it is is very old. You know, um, older than older than me even. So, so you have to be pragmatic about where you're going to start being smarter to try and, um, as it were, you know, sweat these assets. So by using a lot of the information that is already out there in a, in, a, in a smarter way, doing the processing of that data, we should be able to recognise where areas are more at risk. And I know um, Scotland's been doing this with, with their railway um, assets, is, is looking at satellite imagery to try and pick up trends of where there is movement to then focus you know, on the ground, then instrumentation and monitoring and surveying techniques to try and get an understanding on what is changing beneath the ground surface because otherwise that's what the LIDAR and the um, satellite imagery is mostly doing, although I know there are some techniques for picking up things like near-surface moisture content and that, but but to try and understand more about what's going on and what's changing inside to know about when to then make the right interventions because that's what's really key is trying to do enough at the right time that you are reducing risk, obviously, to to the you know the the owners, to the people using the assets, the people that are being protected by them. Um, but you're doing it at a time that is 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 most beneficial, and you know it's 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 our responsibility. You know that's what we have to 
advise and go on that that journey with our our clients and the communities and the people that you know the stakeholders involved in this to try and because everyone wants that same common goal we're all trying to achieve the same thing um so Alison yeah yeah and, and I think we have to realize that without that kind of build-up of 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 data which as I say I think we need to accelerate and coordinate much better we will now and in the future need to manage the unknown manage the risks that we can't possibly uh, quantify and I think that brings me to a, to the sort of unsung hero of of stuff, which is the money. You know, we're talking about water in particular at the moment. Um, although with storm conditions, we might touch on wind, which mm. is a, something that we're, as I say, in February of twenty two, we're certainly uh, <laughs> mindful of at the moment. Uh, my garden carnage being uh, just a small aspect, but um, yeah, the management of water. If you can't fully understand or predict uh, what's going to hit you. Being able to manage what does is absolutely key. And certainly, again, in earthworks that I've been involved with, and, and certainly more so my colleagues uh, closer, to, closer to the designer and, um, at the moment, it's about, you know, it's often the failures that you get is where the groundwater and the runoff water has not been well managed. And that's because the drainage is insufficient or inappropriate or not maintained. And so suddenly, you know, and as I say, drainage seems to me a very unsung hero of much of our industry. And I think that the integration and understanding of how drainage systems and management of the water fits together with earthwork and, and more general geotechnical design and protection, etc., is going to be increasingly important. And sometimes we treat those things quite separately. And I think perhaps uh, a more integrated solution of, of that management so that we can, whatever is thrown at us by climate, which despite uh, forecasting techniques is not really established, um, then I think that might be a really uh, safe approach to design and management of existing facilities. This is what I find really fascinating now at the stage where I'm in my career. Maybe it's, it's, just, it's also about working with ageing infrastructure that the, there's, I think historically perhaps amongst practitioners been a, a almost a separation between traditional yeah well the ultimate limit state design and dealing about global issues and um, so but you know the major ultimate geotechnical states that you need to design a structure for compared to the serviceability ones and actually i I think going forward, what you're going to see is that the serviceability limit state aspects become as important as the ultimate limit state ones, because the type of failures that we see with ageing assets aren't, on the whole, catastrophic ones. They are more like serviceability ones. They tend to be, you know, instability with slopes. Most of the time, what we're talking about is, is shallow side slips. It's not like often the entire... Um, structure fails so in a sense you could almost say well it's still standing up it's working it's, it's, it's functioning it's just that also our expectation or what what do we expect that these assets should still be behaving what is tolerable and acceptable to us to to the communities to the, to the clients and I think that's something that needs to be explored and defined better as well and going forward. And people need to then bring that more, more into the pitch where you're defining what your solutions are going to look like and also what you're prepared to pay for up front and what you want to accommodate. Um, 
also that connection then that if you let the serviceability issue, particularly on on the surface of slopes, deteriorate, that's what they can lead to ultimate limit state failure because you you get that progression in and you actually lost the, lose the utilisation otherwise of what your asset's doing. So, so for example, you can have scour at the the near the toe of embankments and fluvial defences for some time and it might not seem to do any difference. But obviously you get to a point where it's undercut it so much, you get collapsed to the side, you actually lose some of the freeboard, you lose the width of the embankment. It doesn't have the... Um, the, the thickness then to prevent seepage through anymore and things like that. And then you start to get piping erosion and you get failure or you still, you, or you get a flood event and you get much quicker overtopping. So these things, they, they trigger a chain of events and that's what more needs to be understood as the relationships between them. And that, you know, one thing you can't treat in isolation, you have to look at it robustly as the entire unit both for an individual in my case like flood defense but then strategically how that looks like on a whole area and a whole nation um so so alice a lot of things we've we've been talking about are you seeing engineers you know either within arup or with organizations and asset owners are they thinking about these things enough you know the water management side the data you know a lot of the principle design principles we've talked about or is is this still a conversation that needs to be pushed so I think it's fair to say that we we absolutely are thinking of it as an industry, as a company, and as designers more you know more generally. You know we do whenever we're looking at a a project now, whether it's uh, uh, looking at existing uh, assets or or new build. You know we look at climate change. We have in house and also uh, industry generated information on on climate change, on the forecasts and predictions of that, and that absolutely forms part of the design process. But typically, the, that really becomes kind of your your design a single design case, if you like a you know a one in a thousand year and one in a whatever number is appropriate, or you, your client deems is appropriate, and that's the best really that we can do at the moment. Whereas I think that we can see from some of these you know events that are happening more frequently, these storm events, that it's it's not necessarily about Kind of overall changes in in um, groundwater or, or etc. can be these events. And how do you protect existing and future infrastructure? And uh, either by management, as I said, or by drainage and other mechanisms, more actively, or by actual protection of um, you know not necessarily the earthworks themselves, but some of the structures that may become overwhelmed in uh, flood events, etc. So I think that to you know, to say that people are are looking at it and thinking about it um, and you know, with design lives of 50 to plus years, then of course one is obliged to. But I think we also have to, as I say, recognise that these are forecasts. These are not knowns. And we certainly in terms of codes and requirements uh, and understanding by, by the industry and by clients, I think we're in a state of development, shall I say. And I think we are far away from a, an empirical methodology that's being applied uh, universally and uh, you know across all design scenarios. Liz would you agree or are you seeing anything different at all or? No no I agree um, I understand there is some work going on at the moment by um, Sen now um, looking at how to try and 
improve the codes um, and, and neuro codes. One thing I was going to touch on was actually the, the type of work that um, Thames Estuary 2100 have been doing and their approach to, so to how they're managing flood defence for London. They've taken a, an adaptive pathways type approach and just, I think it was last year or so, this was um, published out as an ISO uh, guide is for I think it's fourteen thousand and ninety, which is specifically how to try and and manage infrastructure in response to climate change, and and I think it's it's a really useful technique, um, and I understand there's more guidance now coming out to support that as well, and more codes as well, and to try and um, you know how to actually implement it. But the the premises of it is that we know sea levels are going to rise we know there's going to be knock-on effect also and perhaps you know changes in the frequency and the severity of storms and rainfall events and coastal surges and things but it's not perhaps very practical to just implement now for new solutions something that's going to protect us for 100 years as, as you know often most of our civil engineering structures when you design them they tend to have a design life for minimum 50 years usually 100 120 years even but instead of trying to design for those external things now for 100 years to actually try and break it down into a series of 25 or 50 year steps and what you implement during that stage is you, you design for what you think you know best for that shorter period of time um, and actually try and predict what's going to change in that time as well and how best to do instrumentation or monitoring to understand how your asset is behaving but full well known that you are going to have to intervene again, but within a shorter time period. But what you're trying to do is then use the science and the information that you have much better at that period again. So you're kind of reducing the scale of the uncertainty of what you don't know. Um, because at the moment with climate change, it's, it's quite a big thing to say are we certain, you know, or how much, how much of the uncertainty are we certain on for in a hundred years? So let's break it down into more kind of bite-sized chunks. Um, and particularly when you're looking at quite large systems, for example, like the Thames Estuary, you know, it's a very um, sensible and um, you can be a lot more reliable and confident on, on how you're approaching it and that you're, you're taking a balanced approach to protect and effectively, you know, a very large and very important part of, of our country. So, but yeah, I think it's, I think that's something I'd point people to take a look at now um, is to the, the, the ISO guidance, I so say it's 14,090 and, and the spin-offs that are coming from that now. And that's probably a very, say, seems to be a very sensible way to how to address climate change for our infrastructure. Thank you, Liz. Now we're running out of time. So, Alison, I'm going to come to you for a, a final thought, something you want our listeners to take away and perhaps go, go and do, do now change now what they do what would you what would you recommend so um i guess i've got a couple of things if you forgive me you know for <laughs> for the old earthworks for the existing assets for me i would i would encourage any and every opportunity for our um cohort to go out as designers as as uh, engineers in the field and uh, construction and you know to get to use every opportunity to gather data that is going to be useful to us and to make that more freely available. Again, very often we we know our project and we have data for what we're, we're looking at, but there is a greater good here. And I think that the ICE has an opportunity perhaps 
to in, encourage and coordinate the sharing of that kind of information. So data, particularly movement data, now available remotely, should be fascinating and should, in, you know, it, over the course of probably many years, give us really good in, uh, ways of, of more confidently dealing with the existing world. And for new, for new build, to use the power of, of uh, the data and the analysis that we have available to us now with the computing power that we have now, not to, not to come up with an answer, but to much better understand how different scenarios, loading scenarios, groundwater scenarios, wind loadings, how different scenarios that may occur over those sorts of timeframes that Liz was talking about uh, could impact and to understand the mechanisms and therefore, if you like, to calibrate our engineering judgment in these uh, potential scenarios as we design for the future. Liz, same to you. Any final thoughts you want to listeners to take away? Yeah, I think it's just also to um, not be scared about the change. I think it's a really exciting time. I've always enjoyed engineering, geotech engineering. You know, it's, it's about solving the solutions, solving the problems and things, but it's um, things I guess are changing more so perhaps we, you know, than we, we've known in the past um, because of, well, let's face it, factors that humans have made, but it's, it's outside of our immediate control. But just to be hopeful about that, and for me personally, I find it very, um, uh, yeah, motivating that we are living in a time where we can perhaps do some things to, you know, actually respond to climate change in in the right way now, and to also do the right thing more. We've got so much more knowledge about what the impacts of our actions are, so you know, use that and don't be afraid of it. Um, so, you know, try and come up with, you know, sustainable solutions based on information and evidence and data um, and, and, you know, the the right type of solution that actually works in the long term. And I think that's, that's a really exciting time to be engineers. Just can I pick up on one, that last one? Liz? I mean, I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. I think as geotechnical engineers, we should be, in fact, perhaps the best place of all of the uh, disciplines because we're used to dealing with change and with the unknown. Um, you know, people say we use large factors of safety. I, I've always said we use large factors of the unknown. Uh, and I think that this is an element of that. And we are well placed as a, as a discipline and as a geotechnical engineers to, to take on this, this, this challenge and, and deal with it pragmatically mm. and sensibly uh, in the field. That's a lovely point to end on. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you to Alice and Liz for joining us and sharing your thoughts. You can learn more about this topic and find more podcasts, videos, and other resources on the IC Knowledge Hub, which you can access via ic.org.uk. New content will be launched most Thursdays this year, so do keep a lookout. This has been the IC Tech Talks podcast, and I've been your host and producer, James Crumley. We hope you can join us again soon. Goodbye.